Today's scripture comes from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 30. Please rise for the reading of God's word. Hear now for the word of the Lord. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it, was, where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He, be- he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do hear in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hello, it's good to see you and be with you today. We finished um, our previous sermon series on the seven killjoys. We had Easter, Good Friday, as you saw in the pictures. And now that that's finished, we're going to start a series on the Gospel of Luke. We're not going to go through the entire uh, book, but I'm going to take excerpts from it. And particularly today, we're just going to go straight into chapter 4. And uh, we're going to do this for the next 12 to 13 weeks. I think the set design is great, by the way. Can we give the set design team a hand of appreciation? I like the picture, especially where Juven was hammering away and everybody else was sitting down. That was a good picture. Um, But... uh, I think they, they put in a lot of hours and a lot of time, and it does look wonderful. I'm not sarcastic. I'm not being sarcastic. I really do mean it. I'm just trying to get my place here. So Luke, the Gospel of Luke was written by Luke, right? 
I'm just going to give you a brief background. Um, it was circulated, these letters were circulated at the time, right? Uh, the Gospel of Luke, Gospel of Matthew, Gospel of uh, John, Gospel of Mark, and then we have the Roman epistle, things like that. They were all circulated by a name. And we know this was definitely written by Luke, not only because he says, this is Luke and I'm writing this, but also because in every circulation that we have, it was always titled Luke. And this is also rare because if you want to circulate something, if you want to circulate a letter, especially if it's a religious letter, why would you do it by a name that's not even an apostle? You know, I get Matthew. I get John. But why Luke? Why couldn't they say something else like the gospel of, I don't know, Thomas? (laughs) Uh, Or the gospel of Mary? Uh, People have done that because they want their letters to be read. And we know now people are questioning. And every, like, hundred years or so, people come up and say, oh, there is a gospel of Thomas and a gospel of Mary. Why don't we read those and the answer is, it's been proven every single time it's come up. They didn't write this. They didn't write it. But people wanted them to read the letter. So whose name would you put on? You would put on the name of a super apostle. Someone like Thomas, part of the 12. Someone like Mary, the mother of Jesus. But they didn't write these. And we know it historically. Uh, it was written uh, in the 130, like AD, 130 And so it was not by them, it was by someone else, but they wanted people to read it. But then Luke was written by Luke. And if you wanted someone to read your gospel, you read your letter, at the time you would write someone else's name. You would write the gospel of Philip or something. But Luke wrote Luke. And we know it was true because it was continually distributed as the gospel of Luke. Luke... However, accompanied, we know this by reading Acts, accompanied the Apostle Paul. And Paul, a lot of people think that this is actually the gospel of Paul, in a sense. Because Paul, in his travels, would always be accompanied by Luke, and Luke would write all these things. Not only in the gospel of Luke, but also in Acts. And he would call it, a lot of times, Paul would talk about my gospel, If you want to look it up, it's in like Romans 2, Romans 16, 2 Timothy chapter 2. And these are, don't look it up now, but like keep it, like look up and look it up in the recording. Okay. But Paul says, this is my gospel. A lot of, a lot of scholars think this is Paul saying or talking about the gospel of Luke because he's the one that recited it to Luke. And Luke, of course, verified it with all these other apostles like he always talked about. Most likely, Luke was the physician. It's in Colossians 4.14. A lot of contemporary scholars would say Luke wasn't a physician. And I would say, where's your proof? And they would say, where's your proof that he was? It's like Colossians 4.14. It says, Luke, the physician, is with me and he sends his blessings. That kind of thing. Uh, But, you know, he doesn't have to be the physician. It's not a big deal. But, you know, I just want to kind of paint a picture And now here we have, in chapter 4, there is the whole genealogy that happens, John the Baptist, and now we have the wilderness, the temptations. Chapter 4, he comes out. This is his big debut, Jesus' big debut. 
The listeners are standing. Jesus is standing. This is what we do when we read the word. When we read the scripture, we all stand in reverence for God's word. And so he, he takes out an excerpt from Isaiah, chapter 61, but he takes out an excerpt, he reads it, and then he sits. Did everyone else sit? No. Because back in the day, the culture was the people being taught stood, and the people teaching sat. I think we should do that today. No, I'm just kidding. We won't do that today. Let's kind of reverse today. But so Jesus sat down. And when he sits, he gives his first sermon. And it was probably the shortest sermon that he ever gave. This epic. Probably every churchgoer would read this and they would say, why doesn't our pastor preach like this? One sentence and then I'm out and I can eat my lunch. But Jesus does this amazing one sentence sermon. He says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And that's how he starts his ministry. Enter Jesus. If you're, if you're a martial artist like a fan, like you watch Eatman or you watch Bruce Lee, there is a famous film. It's often considered the greatest martial artist film of all time. Uh, it was in, it's called Enter the Dragon, right? I was going to say Enter the Sun as the title, but that would have been a little too corny. But anyway, Enter the Dragon was deemed so culturally, socially, um, just aesthetically significant that it was submitted to, for preservation in the Library of Congress, and it was accepted. So it is in the National Film Registry in the Library of Congress. Enter the Dragon is about Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee is a Shaolin master, right? And Bruce Lee learns from his Sifu, or teacher, that a former student, Han, was expelled for misconduct. The British intelligence approaches Bruce Lee and asks him to help in an undercover mission to expose Han because Han was suspected of drug trafficking and having a prostitution ring. I'm not even ruining the movie for you. You can find out in the first 10 minutes of the movie. But I was just, I was just thinking about it, and it's like, what? Is it just because I'm a pastor? Seriously? They go to this island. They send in a master they send in this expert, they send in the hero, Bruce Lee, to save the people, right? Because there's this evil person ruining everything. There, it has a system of corruption, drug trafficking, prostitution ring, like all this bad stuff, and he goes in to save the day. And this is, you know, this is recently, but 2,000 years ago, there was a man who came in to save us, a hero, servant of the Lord and he comes in he goes to Nazareth after his Shaolin training <laughs> you can kind of think of it like that but he goes into this wilderness he fasts for 40 days he gets tempted by the devil and then he enters Nazareth Galilee all eyes are fixed on him could he be the Shaolin master could he be the one because they are waiting for him to explain what he just read. That, that sermon was epic, Jesus. That was, and then, so a lot of people read this already knowing the end that people wanted to kill him. 
But if you look at the verses that was read today, in verse 22, it says that all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked. They liked it. They liked his sermon. They didn't want to kill him outright, right? But that's the thing. If you truly hear the word of God, if you truly hear truth being proclaimed, will you like it? And it seems to me that if you really hear the truth, you will be offended. They liked it at first. Because why? The Savior is coming. The hero is coming to help us, to save us. The Messiah is sent. To who or to whom is he sent? Or was he sent? To the poor. They get it. Who is the poor? And if you don't understand this, you have to understand it. To understand not only the passage, but to understand Jesus. Who's the poor? And when you read it, you can think of it like this. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. Okay, the socially poor. That's me. That's the people of Galilee. We're the socially poor. Recovery sight for the blind. And if you're blind, you can't even make a living. So yes, the economically poor. You don't have, you're literally poor. You don't have money. Yes, that's us. The politically poor. To set the oppressed free. They can see in this way, in this manner. And people can possibly exegete it in this manner too. Yes, it's socially, economically, politically poor. Yes, we don't have a political candidate that we like. They're all terrible. Oh, woe is me. If you can relate to that, you can relate to what the Galileans were thinking. The Nazarites were thinking too. Yes, we are poor. You came to save us. I love it that Jesus... Jesus came for me. But then he says, let's define the poor. And he goes, I was sent for the widow. I was sent for Naaman. They are the poor. They are the social outcasts, the economic, economically poor, the politically poor. And you, you think about it. Who are these people as he defines? It's so important because once he says this, the people go into a rage. Imagine going from happy, not just to sad or angry, but murderous intent. Murderously angry, like belligerent. How can you go from happy, like really like this guy, Jesus? He's awesome to just a paragraph or two later, I want to kill him. And now i got to say, it's because the truth was proclaimed. The widow was a Gentile. She was an idol worshiper. She was a woman. She was somebody that the people at that time, at people listening, didn't relate to. Naaman actually was wealthy, But he was a murderer. He was the enemy of the people. And you have to to really look at it to see who Jesus was preaching to. Who was he preaching to? He was preaching to the people of Galilee, the people of Nazareth. If you look at a map, they're all the way north in Israel. And if you're bordering another country, you got to think, 
Think about it. Even this country, any country, towns, cities, communities that border a country, they're usually way more nationalistic, way more prideful, way more fiercely loyal to their country, aren't they? They hate the other country. They hate people crossing their borders. They, they think they're bringing in crime, disease, pestilence, idol worship. They're terrible people. But if you look at the widow, she was from Zarephath. Zarephath was north, directly north of Galilee. If you look at Naaman, he was a Syrian, and the Syrian empire was directly north. They were bordering. They hated these people. These were the people that were not God followers. They didn't go to church on Sunday. And this is who Jesus says is the poor. That's amazing to me. You know, if you give a sermon and someone comes up to you and be like, man, I really like that sermon. It really gave me hope. I'm so happy I heard it. Like normally, a, a good response as a preacher would be, wow, praise God, thank you. Instead, Jesus goes, well, that wasn't for you. That was actually for the person you hate with all your guts who is giving you all these problems. And you'd be like, What? It's so weird, right? How would he do that? And so you have this truth being proclaimed. Every time the truth is proclaimed, people are upset. If you finally hear the gospel message and you don't find it offensive, you don't find that it hurts you, then I'm afraid you have not heard the gospel If you heard this passage and be like, yes, it's because I am the politically, economically, socially oppressed. Jesus came for me. And you're like, yes, that's awesome. Jesus is actually saying something else. Isn't that amazing? We can kind of relate in the other side. We can say, yes, I'm the economically oppressed. I'm the 99%. I am not the maybe one of our well, anyway, but I am this I'm on this side. I am racially not in a majority. I am all these things. I could put myself in this place and they'd be like, yes, I relate to this. And that's exactly what the Galileans were thinking. I relate to this. The Roman Empire is over me. They are controlling us. They can come in and take anything they want at any time. And Jesus says, No, actually it's for the widow Zarephath and Naaman, the Syrian, their enemies. What does this mean? Who is the poor? I have to say, after reading this passage and studying it, the poor are, yes, they are. And if you look at all throughout the Old Testament and even the New Testament, it is consistent of the socially poor, the economically poor, the politically poor, Yes, but that is not the complete definition. The complete definition is you also have to be spiritually poor. Who is the Messiah sent to? The poor. Who is the poor? And we have to understand what it means to be spiritually poor or we do not understand Jesus. Jesus is directly contrasting the people in front of him the people sitting in the pews to the people he says he's come to save. 
Wait, we came to listen to you. We came to listen to your sermon. How can you offend us like that? The Galileans were close to the pagan nations of the north. They were fiercely loyal, like I said, nationalistic. We, we love being an Israelite, being a Jew. We are in this border town. We're so fiercely loyal. Don't you get it? We don't mingle with this other country, with these other religions. I come to church on Sunday. I differentiate myself with other people by fasting and praying, going through these motions that Christians must go through. And he is saying, I have not come for you. What? Are you serious? Why do I even go to church? Why even pray? Why even fast? See, here's the thing. The gospel is not for those who think they are rich. The gospel aren't for the good people. Because if you think, and we think we are very good people, we do go to church every week. We listen to the sermon, and we're really good listeners too, right? We learn and we realize this was a good exposition of the passage today, and I appreciate it. And then Jesus goes, I'm not here for you. God's not here for you, and people will turn. Well, forget you then, Jesus. Forget you out of my life. If you're not going to answer my prayers, why am I doing all this? And this is exactly the heart of someone who is not spiritually poor. Tim Keller calls it the spiritually middle class, but I want to just say this is the spiritually not poor or the spiritually rich We are the people that think because we have done something, God owes me. That means you're not poor. You feel like someone owes you. If you feel like someone's indebted to you, then you're not poor because they owe you something. I go to church every Sunday. I listen to the sermon. I actually listen and I can... critically analyze it. I've learned about textual criticism and all these other things, and I can see that Pastor Gene has gone through these, you know, these levels of criticism, and he's really expositing in a way that will relate to this congregation. He's done all these things, and I can appreciate that. Thank you for that, and I'll be like, whoa, you're awesome, dude. But Jesus doesn't do that. That's the thing. Jesus goes, nope, I'm not here for you. So who is then the spiritually poor? Who are the poor? The poor are people who say, I have nothing to bring. You don't owe me anything, God. In fact, I'm indebted to you. These are the people that are poor. There was no reason for that widow to be helped. No reason at all. She was dying. And Elijah went to her and did a miracle where he saved her and her son. She worshipped Baal. She didn't even worship God. She didn't go to church on Sundays. Naaman. He, and this, a lot of Jewish legends say this, he was the one that actually shot the arrow that killed King Ahab. If you're into the whole history, if you did the 90-day reading, which we recently finished... He was, the legends say that he's the one that shot the arrow. He was such a good general for the Syrian army. Who's the Syrian army? The enemy of the Israelites. He was such a good uh, general that 
when he had leprosy, the king of Syria didn't want him to die. And it's in 2 Kings chapter 5. You can read the story later. But he sends Naaman because Naaman had a servant girl who feared the Lord, who knew who Yahweh was, and said, you know what? There's a prophet in Israel that can actually save you. Goes to the king. King's like, if anybody can save you, I'd be so happy, even if I send you to my enemy. Brings in like 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, which translates today to millions and millions of dollars. And brings like 10 changes of clothes. And I was like, what? 10 changes of clothes? Anyway, but you bring all these things and then you present it to the king. And when the king sees this, he tears his robe. He, he just goes berserk. He's like, don't you see what this guy is doing? He's out to get me. So imagine you had an enemy and then you send somebody uh, to that, you know, enemy nation. And you bring in hundreds of millions and billions of dollars and say, fix this guy, which is impossible to fix. Fix this guy, and I'm giving you all this money. And then the king is thinking, this guy just did it so that he can totally destroy this country, my country, because he can say, I stole all this money. Now I have a right to come in and destroy you, and no other nations will help, because now I've become the bad guy. So he tears his clothes, and it becomes a hopeless situation. And Elisha hears about it, He says, actually, send them to me. And Naaman goes to Elisha and says, uh, yeah, just wash in the Jordan seven times. See ya. And, the, and he doesn't even go out. His servant goes out and tells him. Naaman's like, what? How dare he? But he actually does it in the end. You guys know the story. And he comes out clean. And Naaman, uh, Elisha doesn't accept anything. But these are the people that Jesus is mentioning. These are the spiritually poor. Who are they? They are the people that will say, I can only be saved. Now you have to listen to this. Who are the spiritually poor? People who say, I can only be saved if I receive it as a gift. I can only be saved if I receive it as a gift. I can't give you anything, God. I can't give you anything that you could possibly need. But I need what you are giving me. I need what you have to offer. I need what you have. I'm in a position of absolute need and I can't give anything in return. That's the poor. You know, Jesus was raised by a carpenter and we have the, we have the set design. But carpenters back then weren't so rich. In fact, you can see how poor they were when they went to circumcise Jesus. And they knew who Jesus was, right? Like Joseph and Mary knew this was the Son of God. But when they went, the best offering that they could give was two pigeons. Two pigeons was the absolute bottom ladder of income that you can give as an offering to circumcise your child. And they gave that bottom rung. They were at the absolute poorest, lowest poverty level that's who raised jesus it is all these things we have absolutely nothing to give and this is nothing two pigeons is nothing you can't even get a good soup out of it there's nothing i can't can't do anything but i'm going to give it to you but what i desperately need is your salvation that is the spiritually poor 
These are the people that Jesus has come to save. Who are you right now? Are you in a position where you say, I have all these prayer requests. I have these things that I need. That's why I come to church. And I have to tell you, you are exactly like the people of Nazareth. They thought that because they went to church every Sunday, they thought because they offered their prayers and fasted, they thought that because they went through the motions, God owes them. But I gotta tell you, God owes you nothing. But you need what God is offering you. God offers those who are poor, absolutely on the bottom rung of need, and he says, I am here for you. If you are in that place right now, And you need Jesus. You need a Savior. Let me tell you, He is here for you. When the world has casted you aside, when the world thinks there's nothing you have to offer that it needs, there is no good looks, there is no talent, you have no money, you don't have pedigree, you don't have anything. And you come before God, the world has rejected me, I have nothing. Let me tell you, God is here for you. He has come to save you. And He will lift you up. He will bind your heart. He will heal you. He will heal you from your blindness. He will let you go free. He will give you choice. He will release you from your oppression. Jesus is here for you. Now, the interesting thing about about the passage that he read is in the Hebrew Bible, there are actually period marks. Period marks constitutes a full sentence, right? So you could read, normally what we do is we read passages and we read up to like, you know, paragraphs, chains of thought. People sometimes stop in the middle of a paragraph, but what we never do, what we never do is stop in the middle of a sentence. We don't. It just doesn't make any sense because the thought isn't completed. But... If you compare it to the the book of Isaiah, Jesus stops here. He says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, he rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, and sits down, and then he gives that sermon. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and if you look at Isaiah, it's the middle of the sentence. No one stops in the middle of the sentence. Why would he stop in the middle of the sentence? And you have to think, why would you stop in the middle of the sentence? And you have to read that sentence. You have to read that, that passage. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 to 2, in that sentence, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the sentence goes on, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all those who mourn. But the sentence stops at the day of vengeance of our God. Why would Jesus omit that? You have to think about it. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And people got it. They liked it. They loved it. Like, yes, finally we get what's coming to us. Our due. We suffered. We have this oppression over us. We're going to get this. But then he stops there and doesn't say the rest of the sentence. The day of vengeance of our God. Why does he stop it? And then when he rolls up the scroll, he, he sits down and he says, he says, today... The scripture is fulfilled and you're hearing of it. Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of this prophecy. 
I am the answer that you have been looking for. You think you are rich, and I'm not here for you, but I got to tell you the truth. You are actually poor. You are all poor. The day of vengeance of our God then, when he rolls it up, is saying, I am going to live it. I am the fulfillment of the scripture, meaning when he sat down, he is the embodiment where the vengeance of God will be placed upon. You see, we actually owe God everything and more because he gave us life and we rebelled. We said, we don't need you, God. I want to live the way I want, even though you gave me everything that I have. And the wrath of God must be poured out. But you see, Jesus takes all of that upon himself. That fulfillment means he has now become the person, the being, the vengeance of God will be placed on. He took it. If we see that, if we, once we realize this, and once we realize we are the poor, we're not rich. God doesn't owe us anything. Our prayers change. Honestly, it does. Our prayers change. Our attitudes change. Our lives change. Our lifestyle changes. Clement of Alexandria describes someone who came to know God, and he says he impoverishes himself out of love so that he is certain he may never overlook a brother in need, especially if he knows he can bear poverty better than his brother. He likewise considers the pain of another as his own pain. And if he suffers any hardship because of having given out of his own poverty, he does not complain. This is the beginning of the church. This is the very beginning. These are people who have come to know Christ, who are Christian, Tertullian. He says, see how the Romans would see Christians, and Tertullian would write, this is what the Romans would say, seeing Christians, see how they love one another. Justin Martyr would say, as he sketched Christian love, he said this, we who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else now, Bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and pray for our enemies. If you've received the gospel, you must be with the poor. And you must be poor. If you've received the gospel, you must be with the poor. And you must be poor. There was a reporter, uh, I'm going to close with this. There was a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. His name was Lee. He's famous now. He wrote many books, but his name was Lee. He was a self-professed atheist. And he was sitting at his desk on Christmas Eve. A slow news day, he found himself reminiscing about an old article he wrote about the Delgado family. And in this... uh, In this feature that he wrote, he wrote a series of articles about Chicago's neediest people. And it was just a few days ago, and he was kind of reminiscing. And the Delgado family only consisted of a grandmother named Perfecta and two granddaughters, Jenny, who was 13, and Lydia, who was 11, incredibly impoverished. And so he remembered writing about them, so he decided to visit them. But he was totally unprepared to find what he found when he walked into their apartment. 
This, this, and he, when he wrote about it, it had this apartment building had no like nothing on the halls, nothing on the walls. There was no furniture or rugs, nothing but a kitchen table, and just a handful of rice in the cupboards. And when he interviewed them, he wrote this, and he wanted to check them out again. And then when this time when Jenny opened the door, he couldn't believe what he saw. This apartment now was filled. People would go out of the way, also because it's Christmas, people went out of the way to give and give to them. They had more than they ever wanted for. They had um, school supplies, they had food, they had medicine because Perfecta had arthritis. They had all these things. They had now furniture, rugs even, and cartoons they can enjoy. They were, they were, they were blessed. And Lee was astonished. He was like, wow, this is this is amazing. But that wasn't the highlight of his astonishment. That wasn't that pinnacle. What astonished him most was when Jenny opened the door, he saw what Perfecta and the other two granddaughters were doing. They were preparing all these items and they were going to give it all away. And then he, he, he said, why would you give so much away? And this is how Perfecta responded. Our neighbors are still in need. We cannot have plenty when they have nothing. This is what Jesus would want us to do. And he was dumbfounded. He couldn't say anything. And then after a while, he regained his composure, and he asked Perfecta another question. He wanted to know what she and the other girls thought about generosity, about the generosity that was shown to them. And again, Lee wasn't prepared for the answer they were going to give. She said, this is wonderful. This is very good. We did nothing to deserve this. It's all a gift from God. But, she added, it is not his greatest gift, Lee. No, we celebrate that tomorrow, which was Christmas. We celebrate it tomorrow, Jesus. And Lee was speechless as he drove back to the office. Um, he noted a couple of observations. And he realized this about himself. He had plenty, and along with plenty, he had plenty of anxiety. The Delgados, despite poverty, they had peace. Everything in his life, he realized, was bare, while the Delgados was full. They were filled with hope, contentment, and spiritual certainty. Even though he knew in his mind he, should, he has more than the Delgados, he longed for what the Delgados had in their poverty. Lee now is a famous Christian writer, and he uses his journalistic skills uh, to write Christian books. He wrote books uh, famously known like The Case for Christ and things like that. But if you know the gospel... You know the gospel is for the poor. And when you know the gospel and you believe the gospel, it changes your life. You can't live the way you want to. And you know that the greatest gift aren't these things in the world. The greatest gift is Jesus. And you're free to give all these things away. As we look and as we study this book, this gospel of Luke, I want us to keep this today in mind. This is what we will see. Jesus has come for the poor. Jesus is for the poor. My prayer is that we will be a church 
that is poor, that will give up everything for Jesus, but knowing that we can't offer anything, that the greatest gift that we have is actually Jesus himself. And he offers it now to those who are in desperate need. You think you have nothing? You think the world has rejected you? You don't have talent? You don't have anything to give them? You don't have anything to offer? You can't even get a job? You can't do any, any, any of these things? I got to tell you, Jesus is for you. He didn't come to give up on you when the world gave up on you. He is for you. He is saying, I am your hope. I will be the lifter of your head. I will lift you up where no one else can. And I will keep you there. Jesus is for you. Jesus is the answer, the gift that we all have been waiting for. He is the the true salvation. And I hope that we can receive him today. Let's pray. Lord, we just want to thank you for this good news, the gospel that you've given us. We want to admit that we are not deserving, not any bit of it, but you freely have offered it to us. Our hearts are in a position where we proclaim and we confess that, God, what can we possibly offer you? But, Lord God, we give you our lives. We ask, God, now for your salvation to your people. Let this be a church that is revived with hope, that has been given the truth of the gospel, lives being changed and being given over to the true God. We thank you, Lord, for the good news that has been proclaimed today. Let's take this time to pray and meditate and offer up our prayers in our hearts to the Lord. Where is your heart? Offer it up to the Lord wherever it is. God is good. He will listen. Where are you now? Offer it up to the Lord. He is good. Admit to him that you need him absolutely, completely, every area of your life.